Good day and welcome to the Climate Report, broadcasting and podcasting exclusively here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. With all of the wildfires and smoke that is hammering and punishing people in California, there tends to be more and more discussion about whether people are thinking of moving and where would you move to with today's climate chaos enveloping the entire country. Well, there was an interesting series of maps put together with the help of the National Academy of Sciences that analyzed where in the United States would the impacts of the climate crisis be felt the deepest, whether it's drought or fire or floods or tornadoes or sea level rise. But recently, someone also took the latest 2020 census information to see where people were moving in America. And it turns out they are moving to the most dangerous spots. This is an interesting article that was in The Guardian written by David Sirota, a Guardian columnist, investigative journalist, and uh, a staff writer at the Daily Poster, Julia Rock, also contributed. It says parts of the U.S. are getting dangerously hot, yet Americans are moving the wrong way. Science has provided America with a decent idea of which areas of our country will be most devastated by climate change and which areas will be most insulated from the worst effects. Unfortunately, it seems that U.S. population flows are going in the wrong direction. New census data shows a nation moving out of the safer areas and into some of the most dangerous places of all. To quote the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, we're going the wrong way. The Census Bureau's new map of the last decade's population trends shows big growth in the west and on the coasts and declines in the inland East Coast and Great Lakes region. Now compare that map to the maps documenting the areas most at risk of extreme heat, wildfires, and flooding, and you can see the problem. While there has been some recent anecdotal evidence of pragmatic climate migration, overall the census data shows America's population growth is shifting out of areas that may be the best refuges from the most extreme effects of climate change and into many areas that are most at risk. Put another way, if climate change were an enemy in a war, America is not fortifying our population in the safest places. The country's population is moving into the areas most at risk of attack. Some of the examples are genuinely mind-boggling. For instance, upstate New York is considered one of the country's most insulated regions in the climate crisis, and yet almost all of upstate New York saw population either nearly flat or declining. At the same time, there were big population increases in and around the Texas Gulf Coast, which is threatened by both extreme heat and coastal flooding. Similarly, Philadelphia is comparatively well-situated in the climate crisis, but it saw only modest population growth of 5%. It was surpassed on the list of biggest cities by Phoenix, which saw an 11% population growth, despite that city facing some of the worst forms of extreme heat and drought in the entire country. And then there is South Florida 
which saw Miami alone clock in a 10% population increase, despite the possibility that large swaths of the city could soon be underwater. Compare that to a place like Vermont, where the population growth was flat. This isn't to blame Americans for moving to climate-threatened regions. After all, population growth and decline is often driven by the quest for necessities, such as affordable housing and jobs. But the census data illustrate a trend that has been exacerbated by public policy. For instance, weak zoning and land use laws have encouraged a population explosion in the fire-prone wildland-urban interface. Areas near forests and other vegetation, like where KVMR Studios are located. Likewise, federal flood insurance subsidies have encouraged continued construction in coastal areas threatened by flooding. And corporations have not yet been forced to disclose their climate risks to investors, which potentially allows them to make investment and location decisions without factoring in such obvious vulnerabilities. There are ways to change the policies. For instance, there has been a push to change zoning laws in ways that discourage or prohibit construction in areas most prone to wildfires. In May, Joe Biden issued an executive order requiring federally funded infrastructure to take into account current and future flood risks during construction. And the Securities and Exchange Commission is preparing a rule to require climate risk disclosures from all public companies. But as the census data suggests, the Biden administration has a long way to go. FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which runs the National Flood Insurance Program, has long been underfunded and mostly helps wealthy and white homeowners. Moreover, a recent GAO, Government Accountability Office, report found that while FEMA has good information about flood risk to homeowners, it has not acted on that information to encourage homeowners to buy flood insurance. The report called on Congress to update the mandatory purchase requirement for flood insurance. Meanwhile, homeowners have struggled to access buyout funds for flood-prone properties, which crucially encourage people to move out of high-risk areas and reduce the costs of future cleanups after climate disasters. Some parts of California have considered using that FEMA aid for buyouts in wildfire-prone areas. This spring, FEMA updated its methodology for pricing flood insurance to make it more equitable and to adapt to climate change. But of course, many of the efforts to fix those policies, or at least force them to factor in climate risks, now face vociferous opposition from powerful Republicans in Washington. They tend to want to pretend that nothing must fundamentally change, even though we're already seeing that everything is changing faster than ever. Well, and speaking of where to live, some new research shows that denser cities in America could be a climate boon, but nimbyism stands in the way. In San Francisco's Sunset District, rows and rows of pastel-colored two-story homes flow from the edge of Golden Gate Park into the sand dunes of Ocean Beach. Many houses here have solar panels on their roofs, and compost bins at their driveways flanked by hybrid and electric cars. Yet here, 
and all over this progressive city, one major solution to both the housing crisis and the climate crisis has been met with fierce resistance, building more. Climate scientists and urban planners increasingly suggest that one of the most impactful ways to slash greenhouse gas emissions is to make cities denser. This change, scientists have calculated, could work as well or better than installing solar panels on all new construction or retrofitting old buildings with energy-saving technologies. Residents of cities like San Francisco, Chicago, New York, and Minneapolis already have much lower carbon footprints than in the surrounding suburban sprawl. City dwellers tend to have smaller apartments that require less energy to heat and cool. But it also means a certain American way of life may have to end. The quiet, tree-lined Sunset District of San Francisco has been roiling with controversy over the construction of a seven-story affordable housing unit. At tense community meetings, residents complain that the construction would block sunlight, drive up congestion, and rustle up toxic dust. Not in my backyard, demonstrators clashed at protests with progressive yes-in-my-backyard counter-protesters outside the proposed site. It reached a fever pitch early this year when anonymous leaflets appeared in neighbors' mailboxes charging no slums in the sunset. It got ugly, said Laura Foote, executive director of Yimby Action, a San Francisco-based housing advocacy group. Though the Sunset Project was ultimately approved, she said similar battles over building more housing were playing out all over the city and the country. Efforts to make U.S. cities more dense are also complicated by other countervailing trends. With the population growth of urban cores dropping in recent years as people seek out cheap space. And now, in the wake of the pandemic, places more amenable to remote working for those able to do it. Said Christopher Jones, a climate policy expert at UC Berkeley, a lot of cities are worried about affordable housing and gentrification, so these issues have to be dealt with very carefully. Also, if you build more density in the urban core, it could end up in more sprawl with growth, with people wanting larger, cheaper homes and then commute into these new vibrant centers. It's a bit like pouring sand onto a map. It will keep spilling out. Well, drawing more people into cities could help significantly shrink the country's overall greenhouse gas emissions. Low-density developments, where there aren't a lot of homes and people, produce nearly four times the greenhouse gas emissions of high-density alternatives, with research finding that doubling urban density can reduce carbon pollution from household travel by nearly half and residential energy use reduced by more than a third. But compared with most European cities, urban areas in the U.S. are typically sprawling and heavily dependent on cars. As the tentacles of suburban life reach outwards from an urban core, public transit and even sidewalks often don't follow. And so more people rely upon their cars, with larger and more polluting SUVs becoming increasingly popular. Research has found that people living in neighborhoods that are walkable unsurprisingly drive a quarter less than those in more spread-out areas. 
The default of car ownership in an age of escalating climate crisis has also led to the rise of yimbyism in some progressive cities around a vision of apartments packed close to public transit hubs and amenities. Meanwhile, the temporary shutdown of some streets to cars during the COVID pandemic has heightened calls for more space to be handed over to pedestrians, cyclists, and rollerbladers rather than vehicles on a more permanent basis. Well, at a national level, Joe Biden has called for a historic investment in affordable housing, with his administration urging American cities to change their zoning laws to boost density and to limit single-family housing developments, as well as to rip up highways that have cleaved apart communities, typically communities of color, and that have added to air pollution. But climate scientists at UC Berkeley Jones said that most suburbs in the U.S. were beyond hope for public transit and that the focus should be instead on a middle-out strategy where single-family plots close to city centers are now divided up to accommodate additional residences. Urban growth boundaries are put in place and jobs and services are spread more evenly around cities. Jones said downtowns have jobs, shopping, and schools, places that people want to drive to, but you need to have many cores rather than just one. Having everyone coming into one hub isn't efficient. You need many hubs and different spokes in the wheel connecting them. Well, some states and cities have begun remaking zoning laws to allow building more duplexes and apartments in areas that were once zoned specifically for single-family homes. As a matter of fact, in 2018, the city of Minneapolis became the first major U.S. city to completely end any single-family zoning. In 2019, the state of Oregon did the same, which allows for duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes to be built on parcels that were once reserved for single-family homes. Well, California has made some strides as well. A bill that passed a few years ago has allowed developers to circumvent certain local planning and zoning ordinances if they build affordable housing, which is how the seven-story apartment building in the Sunset District that was met with so much controversy ultimately prevailed over neighborhood resistance. But broader upzoning bills in California have been defeated, often because such measures have failed to galvanize even progressives who supported the state's groundbreaking goals for boosting renewable energy and cutting carbon emissions. While as drought, unprecedented heat waves, and raging wildfires gripped the country, calls to build up cities and cut down carbon emissions have gained urgency. And pushes to build higher, amp up transportation, and reform land use laws have gained new momentum. Said Foote, Climate change has become the broccoli that everyone wants to push around on the plate. It's easy to argue that one housing project won't make the difference between averting climate change and global warming killing us, but really, we need to be saying yes to as many of these housing projects as we can in order to avoid climate catastrophe. In a quick energy-related segment... We'd like to talk a little bit about the nuclear waste that is buried near the beach and the highway down in San Diego. Why 3.6 million pounds of nuclear waste is buried on a popular California beach. 
More than 2 million visitors flock each year to California's San Onofre State Beach. It's a dreamy slice of coastline just north of San Diego. The beach is popular with surfers, lies across one of the largest Marine Corps bases in the United States, and has a 10,000-year-old sacred Native American site nearby. It even landed a shout-out in the Beach Boys' 1963 classic, Surfin' USA. But for all the good vibes and stellar sunsets, beneath the surface lies a potential threat. 3.6 million pounds of nuclear waste from a group of nuclear reactors shut down nearly a decade ago. Decades of political gridlock have left it indefinitely stranded, susceptible to threats including corrosion, earthquakes, and sea level rise. The San Onofre reactors are among dozens across the United States being phased out, but experts say they represent the uncertain future of nuclear energy. Said the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission chair from 2009 to 2012, Gregory Zacco, it's a combination of failures, really. The waste is a byproduct of the San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station, three nuclear reactors primarily owned by the utility Southern California Edison. Activists thought they'd scored a victory when the reactor shut down until they learned that the nuclear waste they had produced would remain on site. That wasn't supposed to be the case, of course. Under the U.S. Nuclear Waste Policy Act of 1982, the federal government was to move all nuclear waste into a centralized remote federal facility starting in 1998. In 2002, George Bush approved Yucca Mountain, a site about 100 miles from Las Vegas. But in 2010, the Obama administration scrapped the controversial plan. And without a government-designated place to store the waste, the California Coastal Commission few years ago in 2015 approved the construction of an installation at San Onofre to store it at least until 2035. A year ago in August 2020, workers concluded the multi-year burial process, loading the last of 73 canisters of waste into a concrete enclosure. It's not the only place where waste is left stranded. As more nuclear sites shut down, communities across the country are stuck with the waste left behind. Spent fuel is now stored at 74 reactor sites and 30 four states. Well, the waste is buried about 100 feet from the shoreline along the I-5 highway, one of the nation's busiest thoroughfares, and not far from a pair of faults that experts say could generate a magnitude 7.4 earthquake. Another potential problem is corrosion. In its approval, the Coastal Commission noted the site could have a serious impact on the environment down the line. It would eventually be exposed to coastal flooding and erosion hazards beyond its design capacity. Well, according to the ex-head of the NRC, Jocko, the problem with our safety analysis approach is we spend a lot of time proving things are safe. We don't spend much time imagining how systems will fail. And I think the latter is what's most important. In today's last segment for the Climate Report, we'd like to read an opinion piece written by Lucy Jones and Kenneth Greenway. They're co-authors of a book that's published today, called The Nature Seed, How to Raise Adventurous and Nurturing Kids. It's a piece that's intended to give hope and provide direction on working with the youth and climate change and fostering a connection to nature. But I wanted to point out that while they refer to youth and children in this piece, and while they refer mainly to the UK where they are located, it is clear that the sentiments expressed here are also just as valid for adults everywhere. This is titled, The More Children Know of the Natural World, the more they'll want to protect it. 
When the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report was published in early August, it confirmed what was already being made increasingly obvious by 2021's extreme weather events. The burning of fossil fuels is, quote, choking our planet and putting billions of people at immediate risk, end quote. While the report's main headlines weren't news to many, especially climate scientists who have been sounding the alarm for decades, and the fossil fuel industry, which has spent billions obscuring the truth about climate change for decades, one cohort in the UK was mostly able to continue with their days unaware of its implications. Young children. David Sobel, the American environmental educator, has a maxim. No environmental tragedies before fourth grade. In the U.S., this is when a child is nine or ten. Is this realistic today in a rapidly heating world? How parents talk to their own children about the earth crisis will be child-dependent, age-dependent, and location-dependent. Of course, as children go to school and become more aware, questions will be asked. And any fears and emotions should be acknowledged and explored rather than brushed under the carpet. Parents and adults spending time with children can model living lightly and encourage responsible ecological behaviors from the earliest ages. But as advocates of engaging with the rest of nature and as the parents of young children, we would argue that the one positive action we should all be able to take and work towards is to give all children opportunities to spend time in restorative natural environments and to find wonder and awe in the living world. Scientific evidence is now proving what many have always known, that contact and connection with the natural world improves health and well-being. Children who spend more time in nature are less likely to have mental health problems in later life. Being in natural environments is associated with positive outcomes from more creative play and social and cognitive development to enhanced immune function and better psychological health. We recover from stress more completely and quickly in a natural environment than in a built environment. As the vast majority of people in the UK live in urban areas where stress-related illnesses are on the rise, a relationship with restorative natural places will become ever more crucial. Children born today who could be looking at a three degrees Celsius rise in temperature in their lifetime if the trajectory based on current policies continues, we'll need as many restorative and resilient natural environments as possible to recover from the stresses of an increasingly perilous world. Evidence shows that spending time in natural environments as a child is the key determining factor in a continuing relationship with those natural environments and has all the associated benefits. It is also linked with later pro-environmental behaviors. We can only love what we know.
and we can only protect what we love. Giving children the chance to know the seasons, watch migratory birds, and learn about the rhythms of more than human worlds is an antidote to what's called shifting baseline syndrome. If a child can't recognize a swift, how will they know if it doesn't make it back one year? There are aspects, too, that are harder to measure. Beauty, for instance, delight, make-believe, freedom. Outside, even in the most urban areas, there is magic in the cracks of a pavement and wonder on a walk around the block. A child can be nurtured by a particular tree in a park, or a dandelion on a street corner, or the snails on urban road medians that have been left to grow wild. Empathy for other species can then be nurtured too in a kind of symbiotic reciprocity. Crucially, giving children the chance to know they are part of a vast and complex matrix of life and that we only breathe and eat because of animals and insects and the sun and rain roots young minds to the land and encourages a care ethic with other beings. There is, of course, a problem. Most children in the UK and elsewhere are living at the forefront of the nature crisis and suffer from the quiet deprivation of the health and well-being benefits of nature. Three quarters of children spend less leisure time outside than prisoners. Four out of five children do not have an adequate connection with the natural world, according to the wildlife charity RSPB. The UK national curriculum does not allow for enough time spent outside having direct experience of our wider ecologies, and schools and teachers are not supported or resourced to give children sufficient opportunities to learn and play in wilder areas. Millions of children don't even live within walking distance of a green space. In London, 98% of schools are in areas that exceed World Health Organization limits on toxic air pollution. 98% of schools in London. In Tower Hamlets, children have up to 10% less lung capacity than the national average. Cars dominate. Children can't play safely on the streets. This is a public health injustice. Time spent in nature is not a luxury or amenity. The scientific evidence shows us now clearly that we require natural environments for our health. Access to nature has even been found to provide a buffer to life stresses in vulnerable children. No one knows how the climate crisis will end and whether the IPCC report will catalyze the urgent and rapid change that is needed. But we do know this. Children need the life-giving, stress-relieving, kin-making, awe-inducing, wonder-sparking experiences of the natural world. Letting our youngest citizens love the world and know the world, 
run through long grass until their heart beats like a drum, climb a tree and become a bird or a squirrel, paddle in rivers looking for minnows, spend time in areas free from harmful air and noise pollution, knowing that they are part of the earth is the very least we can do for them today. That was written by Lucy Jones and Kenneth Greenway, co-authors of a brand new book published today, August 26th, called The Nature Seed, How to Raise Adventurous and Nurturing Kids. Their article was titled, The More Children Know of the Natural World, the More That They'll Want to Protect It. Well, that's all for today's Climate Report, broadcasting here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. For more news and views in between broadcasts and for post-show links to today's news articles, you can find the Climate Report page on Facebook. Feel free to also email climatereport at kvmr.org.